welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast with your host, Dominic Perry. After eight solid episodes of royal dynasties, architectural achievements, and a social paradigm dominated by men, it is time to talk about Egyptian women. With the fourth dynasty winding down to its close, we have an opportunity to really examine the ideological and personal role of the royal woman. For it is with the end of this dynasty that we meet the first of a group of ladies who are going to shape events and politics for the next few episodes. Menkaure's pyramid at Giza had assured him some level of immortality. Of course, the easiest way for a human to achieve such immortality is through their children, and Menkaure's wife, Ka Merer Nebti, meaning the beloved two ladies appear, had borne him a son named Ku Enra, and a daughter named Kentikaus, meaning she is foremost of the Kars. Despite this, the king died without an acceptable heir. Ku Enra had predeceased his father, leaving little to posterity except a finely carved statue now on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. With the passing of the king, and the absence of a son of viable age and experience, the power to secure the throne lay in the hands of a woman. Menkaure's daughter by birth, the young Kentikaus, is the first royal female of whom we can say much more than she existed. Wives of the fourth dynasty kings had been a powerful element of the royal family, but their visibility in the archaeological and literary records is low. Small pyramids built adjacent to the king's monuments may have been dedicated to these wives and mothers, but to date, no burial has actually been found within them. Whether the royal women were buried in the pyramids or not, thus remains something of a mystery. The mother of Khufu, for instance, named Hetep Heris, meaning she satisfies, has never been found, but a shaft tomb was discovered near the Great Pyramid which was filled with furniture dedicated to the queen. A bed, a canopy, armchairs, and ornamental boxes were all discovered in the tomb, along with an alabaster sarcophagus. But the queen herself was nowhere to be found, complicating our understanding of burial practices for the royal woman. So without burials, how do we know about Kentikaus? The queen, as she became, commissioned a tomb for herself near the pyramid of her father Menkaure. Constructed in the shape of a step pyramid near the valley temple and causeway of her father's tomb. Her tomb is unique in the period for apparently having an operational funerary cult. Tombs excavated from the 5th dynasty attest to there being an active cult at Giza dedicated to Kentikaus with funerary priests funded from the nearby settlements. Of course, we have seen over the past few weeks that every 4th dynasty king established a funerary cult to sustain their car and ensure the longevity of their eternal union with Rey. Beyond the king, selected loyal officials could be granted the right to establish cults of their own, with produce from dedicated estates going to the priests who performed the rituals. In private, it is not unlikely that most Egyptians maintained a cult of their ancestors, offering to them daily. But until Kentikaus, we have not seen any evidence suggesting that queens were granted full, state-funded and administered cults. The queen was an integral part of her husband's funerary cult, and was considered to be the earthly incarnation of the deity Hathor, which I'll discuss later. But Hathor was Rey's daughter, and the wife of Horus, 
For better or worse, she was too fundamentally connected to that theology for the queen to be worshipped independently of the others. Kentikaus, however, struck out a new paradigm. Within her tomb, which is mostly undecorated, is a scrawled image of the queen wearing the serpent headdress and false beard of kingship. Her title is inscribed thus, Mut Nesut Beti Nesut Beti. This can say one of two things. It can be read, the mother of two kings of Upper and Lower Egypt, or the mother of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who herself is king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The translation of this title remains a matter of debate. If the queen was mother to two kings, then she was probably more of a family power player than necessarily someone commanding authority throughout the kingdom. If she was mother to a king, and considered a king in her own right, then she would be the first female king of whom we have a verifiable record and monument. But as always, modern gender politics influence the interpretation somewhat. Scholars tend to argue over the nature of the meaning, and, without really saying it, beneath the arguments lies their scholars' prejudices concerning how they perceive royal women within this period. For my own money, I suspect that the title in fact translates thusly. The mother of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who herself is king of Upper and Lower Egypt. How else are we to explain Kentikau's appearance in her tomb with the Uraeus, or serpent headdress, and false beard of kingship? To write the queen off as a simple royal mother twice over doesn't really justify these royal symbols. I also propose the second problem with referring to Kentikaus as mother of two kings. We know the identity of her first royal son. He grew up to be the king Userkauf. What is unknown is the identity of her second supposed son. Userkauf's successor was a man named Sahure, whose mother was one Neferhetepes. So if Kentikaus is mother of two kings, we are missing one of those kings. If she's mother to one king, and king in her own right, then the evidence fits with what we know of the historical record. Now, Kenti Kaus was not the first woman of significance in Egyptian politics, and she certainly would not be the last. But she is the first of whom we know anything more important than her name. A first dynasty ruler, Mary Neith, seems to have been a female ruler. But besides her name, nothing is known. For Kentikaus, we not only have the excavated remains of her funerary monument, but evidence for a cult serving that monument that survived well into the 5th dynasty. A whole village of settlements grew up near to her mortuary temple at Giza, and a few officials later in the 5th dynasty still counted among their titles the office of mortuary priest of Kentikaus. I don't think I need to stress how big a deal this is, but I will anyway. We saw last episode that officials could be granted the right to establish a funerary cult for themselves on the proceeds of small towns or estates. Most individuals, among the family, were probably venerated after death, and offerings were almost certainly made to deceased ancestors. But the funerary establishments of the king were far and away the most visible and socially important of the cults. The size of the monument, the extent of the domains producing goods for offerings, and the establishment of enormous temples dedicated to their veneration, all put 
non-royal cults in the shade, sometimes literally. Kentikaus didn't have a funerary cult or complex on the same scale as her father, or any known king, but the fact that she had her own tomb, and her own cult, is testament to what must have been an extraordinarily powerful woman in her lifetime. At the end of the fourth dynasty then, we have a situation where a princess, daughter of the now deceased Menkaure, holds all the primary playing cards. Anyone who wants to rule must go through her, and without her, the royal lineage in a father-son descent would come to an end. This power was reflected in an epithet known as the Sat Necher, or Daughter of the God, a title peculiar to the 4th and 5th dynasties, which seems to have been given to women upon whom was placed the burden of ensuring that the dynastic lineage did not die out. As a result, Kentikaus was fundamentally important to the perpetuation of the royal household, the ruling family, and the cosmic order itself. Remember, without a king, Ma'at, that fabric of order underlying all reality, could not be maintained, and without a strong queen birthing sons, a new king could not be gained. In taking this position of social and political authority, you might be forgiven for thinking that Kentikaus was skirting a fine line, or cruising for a bruising. After all, wasn't Egypt a patriarchal society like most ancient cultures? Wouldn't the idea of a woman on the throne be totally abhorrent to anyone with influence? No. Egypt was, at the political level, a male-dominated society. That's not debatable. But outside the political realm, when we get into the real social dynamics of families and communities, and of course how these influence the monarchy, a different picture emerges. It is difficult to satisfactorily describe the role and status of Egyptian woman, as we live in a time that has a very high degree of social discourse surrounding the status and role of women in societies. In a post-feminist world, historical examination has focused heavily on notions of equality, or female rights. While this is entirely understandable, it does not quite reflect what was important to the ancients, nor does it do justice to their own outlooks on life, and the world which informed their interactions with those of the opposite sex. For instance, there is no word in Egyptian that we translate as queen. The wives of Egyptian queens were described in Egyptian as wife of the king, or great royal wife, or beloved of so-and-so. This doesn't mean that women could not hold the power of a queen, or were not recognized as powerful social actors in their own right. What it means is that their role, at least in a title sense, was defined by their relationship to the king. But this is not exclusive to women. In earlier episodes, we met the group of officials known as the Rek Nesut, or One Who Knows the King. We have also met sons and daughters of the king, whose epithets always refer to themselves as son or daughter of the king's body. A word existed that we might call prince, but this was more of a title than a reference to inheritance and lineage. Individuals without a drop of royal blood in their body could be called hereditary prince, and it had no real connection with what we moderns understand a prince or princess to mean. So when the royal wife 
is described by her relation to the king. This is not a misogynist attitude, or one suggesting that women were inferior. It's a construct born out of the fact that, as far as theological and ideological concerns go, there was no individual who could possibly match the king in sheer importance for the cosmic order. Every single person close to the king defined themselves by their relationship with this supreme individual, male or female, and the office of kingship went above and beyond gender or biological distinctions, being instead a somewhat abstract concept whose earthly incarnation simply could not be considered less than everyone's superior. So when we deal with any woman who is not connected to the king, we see a far greater degree of social parity, or what we might call equality. In tomb representations, where the size of an individual in a scene directly reflects their importance and status, women are only very slightly smaller than men, and it is difficult to convincingly argue that this is a social thing rather than simply a reflection of the fact that, statistically, women tend to be shorter than men. In statuary, the women are not smaller by a significant margin, unlike children who tend to barely come above the knee of an adult, regardless of age. Economically, women seem to have been relatively independent. We know from the will and testament of Nikaure, the son of Kafre, that women could possess their own land. The prince bequeathed three of his towns, including one originally destined for his deceased daughter, to his wife. The governor Metjen, likewise, donated lands to his mother Neb-es-Neith. This land doesn't seem to have been given on condition that it be administered by a man, and no condition seemed to have been placed upon it at all. The men simply gave land they possessed to women they cared for, and did so without a hint of a controlling attitude or anything we might deem unjust by modern standards. For common women, evidence is slim in an economic sense. Evidence from the New Kingdom tells us that the belongings and property a woman took into a matrimonial relationship remained hers, and went with her in the event of divorce. Now it is true that we do not see women much in positions of administrative authority. Women held social power, as they always have, within the family and the home, but rarely do they appear at the elite level outside of positions such as priestesses. In this respect, Egyptian elite women were not wholly dissimilar from Roman elite women. They were bound by certain restrictions in the matter of worldly authority, and the elite prejudice against manual or industrial professions meant that women of a certain wealth and status were somewhat bound into tasks like weaving or performance. It's a strange truism of ancient societies that while the people lived in a monarchy with life and death power over the common man, the closer you actually got to that centre of power, the more your life became tightly bound with social restrictions, prejudices, and behaviour codes. The ordinary Egyptian, while never really powerful in a democratic or economic sense, was nevertheless relatively free from restrictions or boundaries on the path they took in life. Now granted, a potter probably raised his son to become a potter as well, but if you had multiple children, the secondary sons and daughters were somewhat less bound by obligation to the elders, and could move into other professions relatively easily. The social fabric below the elite level was relatively flexible as far as gender roles went, though I should stress 
that they were flexible by ancient standards rather than our own. Above the common folk, at the elite and royal level, we struggle to define women satisfactorily because the evidence is of a far more controlled nature. What I mean by this is that since the royalty and elites mostly left evidence in the form of tombs and funerary statues, the images we are presented with are bound by the traditions and ideologies which went along with preparing your tomb. In the fourth dynasty, one did not portray daily life on tomb walls with anything approaching realism. Forms, styles, and subject matter were pretty standardized and unimaginative for the most part. For the elite woman of the fourth dynasty, the physical representation is a difficult thing to connect with the daily reality. Women appear in their husbands' tombs as equals in size and bearing. Their statues are placed beside their husband, and little differentiates them. On Menkaure's triad statues, the goddesses appear to either side of the king, and protect them as he strides forward. A statue of a prince named Ra-Hotep, pretty well known to the amateur enthusiastic of Egyptian art, even if the name doesn't ring a bell, shows the prince and his wife Neferet seated side by side. Neferet is wrapped in fine white linen, her skin is a pale cream colour, her wig a rather splendid and large affair jutting out to either side. The prince is caramel coffee coloured and wears a small pointed moustache. The two differ in colouring and clothing, but beyond this they are very much alike. Neither is noticeably taller, neither is given prominence in the seating arrangement, and both statues are inscribed with their epithets. On the surface, we could say that men and women were essentially equal in terms of respect and social status. However, and this is a big thing to remember, the manner in which they were perceived socially is not the same as the roles they undertook in daily life, and the degree to which the sexes were separated. In tomb scenes, elite women tend to be waited upon primarily by female servants, with the exception of scribes and stewards. Men tended to be waited upon by other men, and female servants rarely appear with them. So when it came to servants, there was something of a gender division. Princes and princesses, however, seem to have been raised together. Hieroglyphic references to royal children always include glyphs of a seated man and a seated woman, suggesting that when the children were discussed, it was both genders at the same time. How much this reflected on the daily reality of the children's interaction is unknown, but it's one of those instances where by examining the way that things are described, we can gain some insight into what might have gone on behind the scenes. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. 
and we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Outside the royal family and the elite level, there was a division in the workplace. Royal women in particular were more restricted in the jobs that they could undertake, but it seems that for most of society, there were jobs which women gravitated towards, and those which attracted men. For instance, dancers and performers tended to be overseen by an instructor of either gender, but one never finds a female scribe. Women seem to have dominated the profession of weaving, and females appear as overseers in this line of work, along with some men. In the fields, however, men seem to have done the majority of the manual work, with women mostly appearing to carry goods in baskets upon their heads. Only men were referred to by the title baker, and yet bread making was performed by both genders, and in some bakery scenes, men are almost entirely absent. Royal women tended towards the roles of songstress or dancer for the goddess Hathor, daughter of Ray. No woman appears as a governor or a warrior, and yet they dominate market scenes, offering goods to interested barterers. So commoners had relative flexibility in the professions or roles they undertook, but for the elite, and the royals in particular, these careers simply were not acceptable, and the avenues to authority and power were rare for royal women. As the fourth dynasty wore on, the royal wives had taken onto themselves more and more symbols associated with the goddess Hathor. Hathor was the great female god of the Old Kingdom. On the one hand, she was the mother goddess, the wet nurse of Horus, and gentle bovine deity who protected women. But her other side, as Sekhmet, the lion goddess, was capable of unleashing terrible destructive force, and was a potent force to placate for any king wishing to conduct warfare successfully. As the queens took on the symbolic imagery of Hathor, we can suggest that their social authority increased accordingly. This was thanks, in no small part, to the increasing value of the queens as pillars of stability and the progenitors of the royal bloodline within a slowly fading dynasty. Their self-accumulated divine honours correlate with the growing power of the queens within their socio-political domains. Symbols and reverence go hand in hand in early human societies. Those who control the images, the totems, the relics, and the cult images wield great power over the hearts and minds of the populace at large. As the Egyptian queens came to fill one of the most important of theological roles, their influence among the wider society grew accordingly. If we babble philosophically for a moment, we can explain this on a more fundamental social and psychological level, not to mention geographical. The most important natural feature of Egypt was, of course, the Nile. The annual flooding of the Great River nourished the farmland, and sustained the population of the Nile Valley and Delta. But it was a fickle beast. Years of low or extra high flooding could devastate the ecology and agricultural output, leading to famine or plague. The land thus depended on the river, but its dependence was dangerous, and the processes by which Egypt was sustained and nourished could equally cause it harm. In many respects, this is pretty close to the ancient practices around childbirth. High infant mortality 
and the dangers of birthing a child for the mother meant that, while a successful birth was an occasion of great merriment and rejoicing, the process by which Egypt's population was renewed was very capable of destroying its main participants. For the Egyptians, the unpredictability of the Nile flood and the dangers of pregnancy were profoundly influential in their outlook on life. For instance, the time of childhood was referred to by what we might consider a rather strange analogy. The speaker would refer to the time when they were, quote, in the egg. This did not mean the womb necessarily, but could include the entire prepubescent stage of life. Women and children were considered in terms of potential. The potential for achievement, the potential for destruction, and, most importantly, the potential for immortality. This potential was not unknown to the Egyptians, and was addressed rather literally in a fairy tale from the 5th dynasty. The story tells of a magician, Jedi, or Jedi, who visited the king Khufu, builder of the Great Pyramid. Performing feats such as beheading a chicken and then reattaching the head, the magician greatly impressed the king with his magic. Khufu asked the magician to divine the future, and Jedi told him that after the reign of Khufu's son, and then grandson, the royal lineage would pass to a new family. The children of a solar priest, gestating in the womb during Khufu's reign, would come to rule Egypt, and their lineage would be the new royal line. Khufu was alarmed, but acted sensibly and recognised that this would come to pass only after his own family descent ended, and that he would still have a son and grandson on the throne. He rewarded the magician Jedi by housing him with his son, the prince Ha-Jedef, and lavishing him with bread, beer, vegetables, and an ox. Remembering our discussion of the economics of this period, we can see that rewarding the magician with foods and perishable items rather than property kept Jedi beholden to the king and the prince for his well-being. It was kind of a benign way of keeping the guy around and in your service without giving him anything more valuable like titles or honours. But I digress. After the tale of Khufu and the magician, the story jumps to the scene of Ra Jedet's labour. Ra Jedet is the woman who is destined to give birth to three kings. Suffering under the pressure of giving birth to triplets, in an age where just one child could kill a woman, Ra Jedet's birthing is difficult until the great solar god Ra intervenes. He dispatches Isis, Nephthys, and the god Kunum, among others. Kunum, you may remember, was a creator deity accredited with making mankind, and living at the source of the Nile. Isis, the patron of mothers and protector of women undergoing childbirth, was a natural choice of guardian. Nephthys, the sister of Isis, Osiris, and Set, also Set's wife, was akin to Isis in her protective roles, but was considered to hold greater sway over the matter of death rather than birth. Together, Isis and Nephthys were synonymous with the two fundamental points in a person's life, and their protective roles could ensure a healthy birth and a peaceful death. Nephthys' presence in the birthing chamber was more to protect the mother and child from death in the experience which could easily claim both their lives. 
She was also affiliated strongly with the concept of wet nursing, and was one of Horus's primary feeders. So with Isis, Nephthys, Khnum, and other goddesses protecting her, Ra Jeddet was in the best possible midwifing care imaginable. Having transformed their divine forms into earthly musicians and porters, they travelled to Ra Jeddet's home, and took her into their care. Entering the room, Isis placed herself at the woman's birthing end, while Nephthys stood behind her head. One of the minor goddesses accompanying them eased Rajedet's pain, and seems to have assisted her dilation, for it is described that she quickened or hastened the birth. The actual birth scene is fantastically described, so I'll read it to you now. It's not messy, it's really quite sweet, and a little bit funny, so here we go. Isis said, May you not be powerful in her womb, and this, your name being Usareif. And this child rushed into her arms, a baby of one cubit, about one forearm's length. His bones were strong, and his limbs destined to be of gold, and his headcloth of real lapis lazuli. Then they washed him, after cutting his umbilical cord, and placing him on a couch of brick. Then Mess Kennet, a goddess whose name means foremost of birth, approached him, and she said, a king who will perform the kingship in this entire land. This process was repeated verbatim for the next two children, named Sahure and Keku. Of the three, only Sahure is known as an actual historical king, although the first, Usa Ra'ef, may be the king Usa Kaf, son of Kentikaus. Of course, the story fictionalizes the events greatly, and it is doubtful that a woman named Ra Jedet actually gave birth to three kings. But the essential gist is that Khufu's line came to an end with his grandson Menkaure, and after this a new lineage was established via the children of a solar priest, which we now suspect the next king, Shepseskaf, to be. The new dynasty was established through Kentikaus, who seems to have been the wife of Shepseskaf. In her lifetime, as we've seen, she wielded influence among her family and with her husband so great that she could even be considered a king in her own right. I do feel it is close to the historical truth to say that Kentikaus, while maybe not ruling Egypt as a king in the literal sense, held so much influence and power that she was the de facto king, the one around whom the greatest concentration of social power was focused. Her husband Shepseskaf, whom she married to ensure the continuation of the royal line, and the maintenance of Ma'at, that sweet, sweet cosmic order, sat upon the throne as king, but I for one am doubtful he held much genuine authority over his wife. As Kentikaus accumulated this influential authority, she was inadvertently setting in motion the social shift which defines the division between dynasties four and five. As I've said in the past, the line where one dynasty ends and another begins is often somewhat arbitrary, or based on factors like architectural innovations, which don't really correspond with how the ancients would have looked at their own timelines. But here there is some legitimate justification. Kentikaus clearly represented the end of the fourth dynasty male lineage. In a male-dominated society, 
that did matter. And while we know Egyptian women had a pretty good deal as far as social boundaries and standards went, it's always necessary to keep this in mind. A ruler in deed, if not in name, Kenti Kao's time was spent ushering her husband Shepseskaf through the process of reigning. After his death, her son Usakaf came to the throne, a relatively young man. Unfortunately, the tale of Khufu and the magicians did not come true. Kentikaus had but the one son who ruled in his own right, and upon his death, her grandson, Sahure, took the throne. The venerable matriarch probably died some time in her son's reign, and for her troubles was buried in state in her tomb, and her funerary cult was perpetuated by her descendants for about a century after her death. Of her achievements in life, we know little beyond the tomb, the cult, and her titles, but in Kentikaus we have met, for the first time, a woman who breaks through the veil which lies between us and the ancients, and presents the first of Egypt's four great female rulers. Her influence, and those of her fellow royal women in the fourth dynasty, will be felt throughout the coming episodes. The fifth dynasty is one in which women play an active, though behind-the-scenes, role, and we will meet many of them next week when we commence our history with the reign of Userkaf, the son of Kentikaus, and the first ruler of Egypt's newest royal line. world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs>